Greetings, everybody, um, and welcome to a very special edition of Christian Ethics in the Wild. This is the first, uh, first, first only ever. I don't know sure if I'll do this again. Uh, AMA, Ask a Christian Ethicist. So, um, I'm driving back from Shreveport, Louisiana, to Abilene, Texas. I'll be there later this evening. I have both hands on the wheel. I have both eyes face forward, and that's to clear your minds. Things are being done in the most appropriate and safe manner possible. Um, but I got a lot of time on my hands, so we're going to do this. So I submitted the possibility. I submitted the, the option for people to ask questions and see how came up with some really some really fun ones. So I'm going to start off with a couple of literary questions because. If you read a newsletter, um, you are you are one who, by definition, likes to read. So, of course, there's going to be a couple of good questions on books and book recommendations and reading recommendations. So we're going to start with that and move on to the other stuff. So, book question number one is a two-parter, and this is kind of like the impossible question. It is the Name your favorite three fiction and three non-fiction books. So this is impossible because I never quite give the same answer twice to this question. Um, I have been reading since I was five years old. I did a bachelor's in English literature. Almost did a, almost did a master's in English literature before I took a writing intern into theology. Um, just, I'm coming back from the funeral of my beloved Ian Fern, who passed away last week, um, who was also a, was an English teacher for decades. Um, it was lovely. The funeral was really, was really nice. Um, it was a good way to say farewell to a wonderful woman. Um, one of the things that I connected with Fern over was just what we were reading, because, you know, there's not many people that I regularly know who like to have that kind of conversation. So, love talking with Fern about what it is they're reading. Always, you know, love looking over her shelves, which felt very out of place in Montgomery, Louisiana. Um, and I love that about her. So, uh, one of the things that I got to do while I was there, I went to her house, um, which is kind of like the family. It's the family house. It's the house that my mom that my mom grew up in. Um, Fern has been living there for the last several years. Uh, anyway, it's the family house, you know, like every Louisiana. And my cousin, who is a bona fide English teacher, and I got to go through Fern's books and just take what we wanted. And so it was really, I now have several books that have like her, like her handwriting in them and like uh, ones that I know that I'll really enjoy and have kind of like her embossed label from the from the library of Fern Plans uh, in, the, in the front. So it's pretty special to be able to go through and take some of that with me um, as I drive back home. So the question of books is kind of, it's on my mind. So three, uh, three fiction books. I have had a lifelong love affair with fiction. Uh, before I had a lifelong love affair with theology and ethics, uh, I was a reader of fiction. So this is a hard one. It's also a hard one because <clears throat> there was a long period of time in the last couple of decades that I just quit reading fiction for the most part. Sadly enough, I think it had to do, I was in a doctoral program, 
and when you're first getting started, and I also was, you know, newly married, having kids, not much time for fiction reading. Um, that was not on the agenda for for several years. And so since then, I've been a part of a book club for a few years now where we just read great fiction together, and it's pretty great. Um, so I have been getting back into fiction and realizing all of the, the wonderful gems that are out there that I've still not read and hope to in some form, or some form in the future. So I'm going to name three here, and these are no, uh, there's no specific ordering of these. These are simply three that I think are excellent, and I'm going to say why I think they're excellent. But if you ask me tomorrow to name three, I probably would, I probably would include at least one of these. Um, maybe might change my answer on the other two, but we'll see. So this is today's answer. Number one. Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. McMurtry lived in a little town about two hours north of Abilene called Archer City. Uh, while he was living, he bought up several blocks of the downtown and turned it basically into like his own private library. Uh, it was allegedly a bookstore, and you could buy books there, but it was basically just like all of his personal collection. Um, there were no special orders. There were, any, there were no, yeah, there was no like new inventory coming in other than what McMurtry thought should be in a bookstore. So, um, Larry McMurtry, if you are, this is a book for you if you have lived in Texas or have recently moved to Texas, or if you have fantasized about living in Texas, or if you are breathing with a pulse, this is a book for you. Um, it is on my short list of candidates for the great American novel. Uh, Lonesome of Dove takes place in the, the fictional town, or it begins at least in the fictional town of Lonesome of Dove, which is set on the Texas-Mexico border. Um, you, Lonesome of Dove follows the trajectory of this uh, cattle ranching company, and by company I mean it's two guys that knew each other, known each other for decades. Uh, and an assorted number of, like, hired hands, <laughs> who hail from this little nothing town called Lonesome Dove, and their cattle drive from the Texas border all the way up to Montana. It is phenomenal. The miniseries is great in its own right. If you, didn't get, if you haven't caught the, the 80s miniseries with... Uh, Robert Duvall, and who else is that? Tommy Lee Jones, and a whole bunch of just an amazing cast. It's really good. Um, but the book is just wonderful. It is funny. It is a little bit body. But the beauty about this book, even with the, when it's body, it's not like risque, or uh, it's not explicit in any way. It's written on about a 6th or 7th grade reading level. And so it's very easy to follow. There's no big jargony words or terminology. It's very colloquially written. And so even when they're writing about sex, which happens more than I remember, because this is my second time through, um, it happens more, sex happens more than I remember it happening. But it's always very discreet and very uh, euphemistic. But in, in a way that you kind of you get the idea of what's happening, but they're not gonna, he's not going to like go into any blur and detail about it, because that's not the point of this book. Um, so, once a dove, it begins in 
the dusty town of Lungs and Dove, and it culminates, kind of, in Montana. I will not spoil a word of this, except to say it should be on your reading list of things that you read before you die, because it's just magnificent. Um, and it's a magical kind of book. Um, so, number two. Uh, another book that exercises magic over me every time that I've read it, and I've read it three or four times now, is David James Duncan's The Brothers K. Uh, David James Duncan deserves to be up there with the greatest novelist of the 20th century, even though he has only written three novels, one of which just came out this year. Um, it's a book called Sunhouse. It's about it's a, about a 900-page corker that's I'm waiting to. After I get done with Lungs of Dove, which is a beast in its own right, about 800 pages, then I'm going to get back to Sunhouse. Um, David James Duncan, if I were to describe his style, it is... Somewhere between uh, John Kennedy Tool and a Buddhist monk, it is the perfect combination of funny and hilarity and shockingly rich and profound poetry that drips with illusion and metaphor and... Uh, but without being high-handed about it, um, his first book is a book that is a little, it's, a, it, it's called The River Why. I haven't reread it since I read it the first time, like, almost 20 years ago. And so I need to go back and revisit it. My estimation of it is not nearly as high as his second book, which appeared about 15 years later, um, The Brothers Kate. Brothers Kate follows the story of, um, a family in Washington State. You have four brothers, two sisters, um, an exceptionally religious and neurotic mother, and an ag like an agnostic and perpetually dissatisfied father. And when I say that it is magnificent, it is every capital M, every bit of the magnificent, every bit magnificent that I can possibly describe. Um, his writing style, as I've, I've kind of laid out, um, he has, in Brothers K, it takes place in the 60s and 70s, and it follows the trajectory of these four brothers, primarily, as they're trying to navigate um, an America that is changing pretty rapidly. And so, I won't, again, no spoilers here, but it tracks these four brothers as they change as they uh, struggle to remain a family together, uh, the challenges that they overcome, the way that it, uh, the way that they have to navigate questions of what does what does love look like in motion is pretty is pretty wonderful. Um, there's baseball. There is philosophy. There is. Uh, a whole lot of, gosh, just absolute hilarious passages, but just absolutely exquisite writing. Andrew um, McMurtry's gift was writing in a way that was so accessible and yet so rich. There are passages in one of them that are just laugh out loud funny. 
without him even trying to be funny. He's not telling a joke. He's just describing these characters in ways that is just dead on and hysterical. Um, there are some laugh-out-loud passages in the Brothers K just because of the situations that these brothers find themselves in. Um, but Duncan's prose is not like, he's not shooting for accessibility. He's not shooting for a sixth grade reader. He's not afraid to draw his readers into the weeds and demand some things of them as they're, as they're going. He's going to help you out along the way, but he's also going to make you work a little bit. But my gosh, the work is so worth it on the other end. Um, absolutely rich and breathtaking. If you want a book that involves religion, baseball, America, family, um, philosophy, and a book in which there is not a single sentence out of place, this is your book. Also a hot contender for me when I think about the great American novel. There's probably maybe like two other contenders, but um, these first two I think comprise those those first two of my two of my books. Third one is one that I read for the first time this summer and actually listened to, which may or may not uh, play into how highly I estimate it here. It is Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Um, I read and or listened to the entirety of George Saunders' canon this summer. Had read a number of his short story collections before, but just was doing a lot of work outside and needing some stuff to listen to and just went for it. And my gosh, it, there are far worse things that a person can do with their summer than to read and listen to everything George Saunders wrote. Um, Lincoln and the Bardo takes place. One of the people's surprised. I'd had a copy of it on my shelf for a, a few years now. When I was in New Orleans several years back on vacation, came across a signed copy of Lincoln and the Bardo. This is like right after one of the field trip. So I bought it, had not read it up until then, and finally just wound up listening to it. <coughs> the audio version is stupendous. It features Nick Offerman, David Sedaris, um, and uh, Michael Keegan Key, uh, just a whole bunch of incredibly talented voice actors. Um, and it, the whole thing is set up as dialogues between a cast of characters who are all living in the Bardo, in living in kind of this limbo sort of situation between life and death. They've all died. They all died in kind of these states of longing or states of desire um, unfulfilled in their life's ambitions or their life's desire. And, uh, my gosh, it's just, I, it, it takes, the, so the, the book's print, that's, that's where it takes place. And so the conversations you're getting are a lot of kind of conversations among the different people who populate this world. But it's called Lincoln and the Bardo because it takes place during the time of the Civil War, during uh, when Abraham Lincoln's son, Tad, dies while Lincoln is president. And so it's a book about grief. It's a book about longing. It's a book about what the good life looks like. Um, if you're a reader, if you're a literary person, you should read this alongside Dante's Purgatorio because I think that that would just about... I would just blow your mind. Um, it truly was a stunning read. Rich, profound, philosophical, um, oh, just just 
heart-wrenching rich read. Uh, if you haven't picked up a pattern so far, it's that I go for, I, I like to go for, um, I like to go for this kind of book, books that make you, that have to, you have to chew on for a while. Um, in college, I did an independent study on the novels of Dostoevsky as a senior. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, so that should be a good indicator. But I love a good, uh, a good book that's just kind of just breezing through it. But the ones that I'm really going to put on recommendation are these kinds of uh, big chews. Three nonfiction books. Number one, Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, have read this probably three or four times in the last two or three years. Listened to it a couple of times. Um, if the conversations that were happening in the States followed Du Bois more, I think that we would be having very different and much more productive conversations about race, class, economics, uh, racism. Du Bois was a sociologist decades ahead of his time. Um, died in the 1960s. Souls of Black Folk is partly autobiography, partly pro, partly poetic rendition, partly meditations on spirituals, partly sociological exploration of class and race in the early 1900s after Reconstruction. Um, just his insights on how race functions and how race and class and economy have all linked themselves up together is just breathtaking and so worth your time. Uh, number two recommendation. John Cashin's Conference of the Desert Fathers. This is one I've been reading slowly for a number of months now. Um, I'll pick it up and read a chapter and then have a sit with it for a while. Cashin kind of stages his work as a series of conversations between uh, with with Desert Fathers in the 4th century. Um, and so it's a rich exploration of the spiritual life and of prayer and of spiritual disciplines and virtue. And there is a lot of demons in this book. And I just don't quite know what to do with those, but everything else is pretty amazing. Um, it's really just profoundly rich and uh, meaningful. Uh, third recommendation is a little bit, is pretty different than this other two. I, the first one that came to mind, I thought of, like, what, what, what kind of big nonfiction do I want to recommend? Through the Eye of the Needle by Peter Brown. Peter Brown was a, is, was, a, like, a historian's historian. Um, wrote a landmark biography on uh, Augustine uh, that still stands up, even almost 50 years later. It's just so good. Um, so, Through the Eye of the Needle is his work on uh, wealth and poverty in the early church and how early Christians thought about what wealth does to us, what poverty does to us, what does the spiritual life have to do with wealth and poverty. It's just a really, he's just, he's just good. Whenever Peter Brown writes something, he has the, he has the goods. He knows where the sources are, he knows how to read the sources well, how to kind of piece together the fragments that we don't have. Um, it's just excellent. So those are my three fiction recommendations and three non-fiction recommendations. One of the things I love about being a, doing Christian ethics is it lets me play in a lot of different kinds of literature. 
um, I get to you know um, I get to make use of history, theology, philosophy, and social sciences, and biography, and a whole lot of stuff. So it gives me kind of feeds into my um, my literary omnivore nature. Um, related question on it came from James Decker of the West of 98 Substack, which you should also be you should also listen to and subscribe to. Um, favorite Wendell Berry book and or agrarian authors that people should be paying attention to. So I have to confess that Wendell Berry is not usually my go-to. Um, I like some of Berry's work. Uh, I read his big one that just came out uh, on race, and I thought it was rich and compelling and really missed the mark in some important ways. Maybe that's, I've written about this um, at, at one juncture, maybe I'll try to link to it. But Barry has never been for me like the absolute go-to. I know people who absolutely hang on everything that he has to say. And I will concede freely that I think that he's right about more things than he's wrong about. Uh, that being said, I would not necessarily count myself among like the fan, like the true fans of Barry. I think that his contributions to um, essays and to, uh, I think, the religious imagination of, of agrarian life and religious life are just incalculable. I think that he's, he's definitely worth all of the praise that he gets. Um, he's just, I just have never really connected with his work, partly because I, I don't know of the agrarian life that he speaks. I did, I've never lived in a small town other than four years of college when I lived, but even there, I was living in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. It's not exactly agrarian. It's kind of mini-suburban. Um, so, my favorite book of his, though, would be Sex, Sex Community, Freedom, and Economy. It's a, it's a, it's a book of interlocking essays about the way in which agrarian life um, is a life built as built out as a community, and what do things like gender relations, economics, and personal freedom have to do with that kind of world. Um, yeah, really good, really highly commended. As far as other agrarian readers, the one that comes immediately to mind is a guy named Norman Wiersma, W-I-R-C-D-A. He is a professor out at uh, Duke Divinity, where he's been for about 20 years or so, writes a lot of uh, a lot of good work on ecology and theology. Um, one that I would particularly recommended is, is a book called Food and Faith. Um, I used to use portions of that for a class that I taught, and it's just really rich explorations of the relationship between our spiritual lives and agriculture and our bodily processes. Just really worth your time. It's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a slog at times, but also asks some incredibly rich, uh, rich questions. Um, if you're looking for something that's not quite agrarian, but also kind of in that same vein of um, help you to cultivate a spiritual wonder for the world we live in, um, I can think of no book better to do that than Edie Dillard's Pilgrim and Tinker's Creek. It's a masterpiece. Um, not necessarily agrarian at all. Dillard 
is a contemporary uh, writer and essayist, um, sometimes novelist, who spent a year living at living in a cafe at Tinker's Creek and just kind of writes all these amazing observations about the interrelationship between um, what it means to pay attention to the natural world and the, the mysteries of the natural world. So it's just it's um, fantastic. I wouldn't put that on my you know, yeah I wouldn't put it on like my top five books of all time, but it's pretty close. So, not quite agrarian, not quite what you're asking for, James, but another highly recommended work uh, in that same kind of vein. Um, okay, so those are the book questions. Those are all, I love answering book questions. I'm happy to, happy to answer those. But I want to move on to a very different kind of question. Uh, this one comes to us from Seth. Uh, Seth Haynes is a, is a writer, um, a very good writer. I just got his recent book it's, uh, that he and his wife Amber co-wrote together. I have not cracked it open yet, but it is waiting for me when I get home. Um, and he writes about ethics of technology. What sorts of things should Christians be aware of when they're considering like technology use? So, I'm going to answer this by way of... Um, answer by way of saying how I ordinarily teach Christian ethics. So I teach Christian ethics ordinarily by introducing students to kind of three basic components to, um, to moral questions. One is the question of obligations. What are the, what must we do? Um, what are we obliged to do? Who is obliging us to do these things? What is the scope of our obligation? Um, are, do we have obligations that are ongoing, or like, or should we think about our obligations as only like for a certain amount of time, or a certain like to a certain people? You know, there are all sorts of things when we encounter like moral claims upon us that take the form of "thou shalt" or "thou shalt not." Um, but even those ask like requires to ask a lot of questions about who they apply to and how long we should do them what magnitude we should do these in, you know, the questions of obligations. So there's, what are we obliged to do? Uh, and then there's a second part that I regularly talk about, which is the, the moral agent themselves. What kind of person is doing that which we have been obliged to do? And then a third part is toward what end do we do these things that we have been obliged to do. And all these things are related, that a person can pursue an end irrespective of what it is actually doing to us. But you, So you might wind up like accomplishing really great things, but being a really terrible person in the process. Or you can accomplish things in a way which fulfills your obligations, but does all sorts of damage along the way. Um, or you could focus purely on your own, on cultivating your own virtue and ignore whatever obligations that might come upon you. Um, but I think that a full go, a, like a, a full-throated Christian ethic has to attend all three of those things. What are the things that we've been obligated to? to what, have, what are the things we've been summoned to attend to, as one writer puts it? Uh, what kind of people are we called to be? And what are we, what are we meant to pursue? What are those things that we're meant to go toward? 
So with technology, you can kind of frame the, their use in this kind of way. Um, there's some too that would take like the use of technology in a purely pragmatic kind of way. Um, does it work efficiently? Does it offer a greater amount of freedom, personal freedom or personal time than uh, another kind of freedom? Wendell Berry actually has a check, has a good uh, list of questions that he proposes to ask. I don't have them in front of me, obviously, because I'm driving. But um, I'll try to link to them because I think they're good ones to ask. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this question from this threefold perspective of obligation, virtue, and the end toward which we act. Um, do, does a, is a form of technology help us to meet the obligations that we have upon us, right? Do they help me to be a better parent? Do they help me to be a better teacher, a better uh, child, a better uh, spouse? Like, is this form of technology contributing to my capacity to do, to meet the obligations that I have, well, right? Um, Actually, I don't think this is the most important question of the three. The most important question is also not, I think, the second question, which is, what is the end toward which we're, we're acting? Does this technology help us to pursue uh, our ultimate good in a way, in a, in a, in a good way? Um, so does it help us to, if I was a utilitarian, I would think in terms of like ultimate happiness or uh, goodness, for the greatest number of people. Um, does this technology help us to do that? Does this technology help us to like distribute goods to the greatest number of people in an efficient sort of way? Does this um, technology help us to maximize pleasure? Does this technology help us to um, like seek God maximally? Those would be kinds of ends kinds of questions. Um, the problem is if we if we answer those kinds of questions independent of the second question, who are we as moral agents? Then we wind up doing really inhuman kinds of things, or like achieving a good end, but achieving it in a way that's really bad for us. So let me take a, a specific example here. So there was a book that I hated called. Uh, what We Owe the Future, it's written by William McCaskill. And he's trying to answer a very complex and tricky question of how do we live our lives now in ways which are also beneficial to future persons that we cannot know of and possibly will never be. Um, and he's thinking about it with respect to warming planets, with respect to climate, with respect to like uh, diminishing resources. Like how do we live toward the future well. Um, one of the things that he wants to propose that we make use of is um, artificial intelligence algorithms, which help us to determine um, how, what hypothetical life on planet Earth will look like in 50 years, what parts of the world might be uninhabitable, what parts, what kinds of food will be in decline, what kinds of foods will be prosperous, and to make use of that in order to kind of to work out scenarios in which we might be able to plan now for a better future. Then, um, that, this is, to my mind, a great example of meeting an obligation 
working toward a good end, but completely ignoring the central question of, like, uh, the central question of what kinds of people does this make us in the process? Um, because he's interested in, like, questions of distribution, questions of, like, maximal goods. Um, I'm increasingly interested in the second kind of question. What kind, what does this technology do to us as people? What kinds of people does it train us and habituate us to be? If I use this technology over a long period of time, does it, does it contribute to my patience? Does it contribute to, contribute to my, uh, my love and attention of those around me? Does it make me, does it help foster a, uh, a kind of attention to the world that I need in order to love the world well and to be just toward it? Um, that's the kind of question that I think is really interesting and probably the most important. Insofar as the kinds of people we are help us to <laughs> value certain ends and not value certain ends. So if I'm a person who loves particular people well, then the kinds of questions that McCaskill wants to answer are going to feel like abstractions and almost like inhuman questions to try to answer. Um, because McCaskill is ultimately trying to help us to love people that I don't know and don't have any capacity to know. I'm loving a hypothetical entity, not a, not a particular entity who will need certain particular kinds of goods, but a generic kind of human that will need uh, an average uh, an average number of goods. He's not asking me to love. He's asking me to love like a very average algorithm-driven kind of human, not a particular kind of human. And so, if I'm a if I become the kind of person who never learns how to pay attention to particulars, then I'm going to wind up with solutions to big-scale problems that are always in you. Um, so when I think about tech, that's what I think about, is you have to pay attention to those three parts. What are we obliged to do? What kind of people are we meant to be? And what ends are we meant to pursue? And you have to have all three of those. You have to have all three of those to play. I think that that means that maybe we'll have a... I think ultimately with this Cash 7, we probably will wind up having a more circumspect view of technologies and we'll continue to ask questions about technology's uses, even and especially when they work and they're efficient at what they do. Um, that's when I think we have to be most careful in asking um, what we're doing. Um, two more questions. One, uh, so kind of moving away from this question of um, like of technology and answering this question, and there's another question that. Uh, Amber, who also has a great substack um, that I enjoy, has asked with respect to anti-obesity medication, particularly medications which suppress our appetite in order to um, kind of help us achieve a certain kind of body image. Um, this is a really tricky question. So Amber, I think, is is asking a question about like. Technologies which are designed to alter the way in which we live our lives in the body and the way that we uh, desire food, the way that we, um, the way that we interact with, like, the way that we interact with our bodies. Should we be taking things that are designed to force us, you know, like, 
form us into a stylized image of the perfect body, right? Should we take something that suppresses our physical appetites in order to conform ourselves to this sort of image? The answer to that, I think, is no. But here's where it really gets interesting. Like, this question of appetites and should we be suppressing our appetites is itself a really fascinating one and one that goes back to another book that I've already mentioned, um, the John Cashin's uh, book on the conferences with the Desert Fathers. They write and talk about at length the role that the appetites play in the spiritual life. That we, by nature, desire certain things. This is what is meant by the appetites. Um, either we desire like intellectual goods, we desire physical goods, we desire goods of pleasure or aesthetic goods. Um, and these are all like natural inclinations of what we of, of, of humans, right? We desire things. Um, the problem is that our desires are not, they're not perfect, and they're not sacrosanct. And in fact, sometimes they're just, they're just wrong. Um, that sometimes we can desire the right thing, but we desire it in the wrong way, or we desire too little of it or too much of it. It's like, I really want to be a, I really want to be a healthy person. I just don't want to be too healthy. So maybe I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to, go for a walk maybe once a week and I'm going to call that good, right? I'm still going to eat garbage. I'm still going to go eat Chick-fil-A six times a week. But you know what? I'm going for a walk. You know, that would be a great example of like desiring the right thing, exercise or health, but desiring too little of it, right? You should probably pay more attention to what to like the good of the body um, than you should. But you can, that, that can kind of deviate in the opposite extreme of desiring a good thing too much. This is the person who over-exercises or who harms themselves in the pursuit of bodily perfection, or who devotes so much time to bodily perfection that they become estranged from their friends and their co-workers and their loved ones because they're so obsessed with how they eat and what they eat and when they eat and uh, how much they're getting exercise and when they can possibly go for, go for a run or these sorts of things. Um, so, the initial question then about suppression of appetite is really interesting, I think, because um, I think that it's fine that we do things to uh, like alter our appetites, insofar as I don't take our appetites to always be right. And I think a good indicator of whether our appetite is, is ordered or disordered is like, what is it being ordered toward? Is it being ordered towards some sort of bodily perfection? And if it is, then we need to really consider, like, why am I suppressing my appetite? Is this perfect, like, vision of bodily perfection, is it something that's even worth pursuing? Um, is this, in fact, damaging to me to pursue this form of bodily life? Um, so, it's a really good question. So, insofar as, let's get down to, like, brass tacks about this. Insofar as... Uh, appetite suppression can lead us toward health, not in a stylized form, but in a form of health which is appropriate to our body, then I think it can be a useful tool. I think there's also, like, I'd have to want to ask a bunch of questions about, like, what exactly is this appetite suppression thing doing to us long term? Is it teaching us to 
rely upon a technology when we should be relying, we should be instead cultivating virtues and patience and self-denial and all these sorts of things. Um, so there's a bunch of other questions, but in principle, I think it could be an aid, so long as it's not ordered toward a really bad end. Finally, saving this for last, Tish Hoxenreiter um, comes to us with a question about how should we desire uh, the unity of Christians? This is, I think, a great question and one that I think about quite a bit. So I direct the Baptist Study Center, and I direct it within a Church of Christ university. And I direct it within a faculty who is pretty ecumenical in our own interests, in our own reading, in our own desires. So if you know anything about the Churches of Christ, um, they emerged in the 19th century out of a desire to purify the church, and at times can have been very uh, sectarian in orientation. Baptists have it as well, which is why I think it's a perfect marriage. Two entities that have been sectarian in their past, both of which are trying to be more ecumenical now in the future. Um, it's a pretty good place to be. So, uh, I think about this question of church and Christian unity quite a bit. Um, I'm finishing work on a manuscript that is about 20th century, like a 20th century doctrine of the church, about how Christians have thought about and lived out the, what are called the four marks of the church, which are one, holy, catholic, and apostolic, say with those people briefly, that the church is one, that it is, there is one church, uh, the church is not meant to be churches or divided bodies, but to be seeking the unity of this, um, as Jesus prays for his church in John 17. Um, that the church is meant to be holy, uh, that it shares in the holiness which is God, and that it seeks to bear that out in its sanctity and its, uh, its, its life together. That the church is meant to be Catholic, small c, not necessarily Roman in orientation, but Catholic, small c, uh, embracing of all of it, that it is meant to be universal, that which is held in common by all Christians, and that which, uh, like, can obtain for all persons. In other words, you don't have to be a particular kind of person to be a Christian or to go to church, but the church, like being a part of church, is something that just belongs to you because you're human. Um, that God calls you to be a member of the church um, because you are God's creation. And finally, apostle, well, apostolic. Uh, the church is also meant to be something that uh, coheres to in the way of the apostles, or it coheres to the teachings of the apostles, which preserves the deposit of that which was given to it in the beginning. Um, it's not trying to be novel for novelty's sake, but trying to be faithful to the teachings of the work of Jesus Christ um, as given to the apostles. So that's kind of what the book is about: is trying to trace out the way in which and that was really. It's really a lot of there's a lot of bantering back and forth. But one of the things I've been surprised by in writing this book is there's actually a lot more overlap and a lot more in common than not across the 20th century. I think um, we'll give kind of one quick example in the. Uh, we'll wrap this thing up because we're almost at 43 minutes already. God bless you if you're still listening. So, one of the things which becomes really popular in the 20th century is attention to bodily healing. It's, that's something that you, norm, you normally associate with, like, the symptoms of God, uh, charismatic movements, Pentecostals, um, 
Foursquare Church, um, more charismatic churches. So you, you have that emerging in the 20th century, but you also have the rise of, beginning in the 18th century, or the 19th century, but then really taking full flower in the 20th, medical missions. And so one of the things I write about in the book is how these are two halves of the same whole. That, you know, we normally don't think of um, bodily healing movements in the same breath as we think about medical missions. But these are commitments. So you have a bunch of charismatic folk that go for the first. Um, the second one, medical missions, has been done by Catholics, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists, and all kinds of Protestants. Um, but it's, though they might be divided on a variety of other questions, they come together by asserting that bodily wholeness is part of what the gospel intends. Um, that we would be members of Christ's body, not just corporately, but in the contours of our own flesh that God wishes the renewal of our bodies. Um, and so, whether we talk about that in terms of uh, miraculous charismatic healings, we talk about the, the ongoing skill of physicians on uh, medical fields overseas, um, that's kind of a common commitment that works itself out, and it works itself out at the, at the level of the question, how does God heal? Not whether God heals or does bodily wholeness have something to do with gospel? But that bodily wholeness has something to do with gospel. And we're just arguing now about how it works, right? So that's what I mean. You start looking at the particulars, the ways in which there are a lot of divisions, you begin to see that there's actually, there's actually ways in which these things dovetail together. They shake hands in really unexpected and kind of interesting kinds of ways. Once I get the book written, I'll let you read it, and you can judge for yourself whether I'm reaching or whether I'm whether I'm onto something. So when I think about this question of unity, I think it's really a matter of like paying attention um, that there might be some, some, some substantive things which divide Christian groups, but I think more often than not, and that's where the asterisk to this question comes in. More often than not. Um, the things which divide us are, are largely because we're not paying attention. We're not hearing what the other person is saying, or the other group is saying, um, and not asking about what that means and what that form looks like in our own church spaces that we have. We share far more in common than we don't. Alright, well that's it. Um, thanks for listening. I've still got a long way to go on my drive, but I'm going to put on another audiobook and see what, uh, see what magic lies, what magic lies there. So, alright, take care.